0: The Deloitte family is in the market for a new used vehicle. I can't believe I'm going to admit this, but I am. I'm going to become a minivan dad. I'm crying inside that you're cheering because you're mocking me. Uh, We've realized that Two boys, a dog, and all of the supplies that come with it require a little more vehicle than a little hatchback. So, we've decided that it's time for a minivan, and yes, I turned in my man card already. You're welcome. (laughs) But if you've ever bought a used vehicle, you know that it's important to have something called the Carfax Report. You buy a used vehicle, you want to know the history, the repairs, the owners, all of those things. You can get that by spending $30 or so on this report. You use the VIN number, and you can find out the history of the car you're interested in buying. So a couple weeks ago, Hannah and I were seriously looking at a car, so I did what a responsible adult would do, and I paid way too much money to get this Carfax report before I test drove the vehicle. And I learned a couple valuable things. First... The car, which was a 2015, started out as a lease, red flag. I don't want to drive a lease because when someone has a lease, they have the car for three years. All that they need to do after three years is they turn the car in and it can run. They don't have to take care of it at all. So for me, I don't want to buy a used car that was a lease. Uh, Second, the guy who owned it had only owned the vehicle for three weeks, Interesting. That's a bit of a red flag. But here's the worst. The car was actually originally sold not in Wisconsin, but in Illinois. And you know what they say, Fritzdale? Dale, never trust a Bears fan. Oh, he's wearing his Bears hat tonight. So needless to say, we did not buy the vehicle, which is probably for the best. But I can't imagine not buying a car without the Carfax report. You need to know the history you know the background. Somebody could change the odometer and you wouldn't know it, but you could still find it out on the report. There could be a major accident. It could have a salvage title. You can learn all of these things with the report. You need the report. Have you ever heard a believer or a Christian say something like, I'm a New Testament believer? Ever heard that before? Or have you ever heard somebody say something like, yeah, I don't like to read the Old Testament. It's just too hard. Or have you heard anyone say something like, which one pastor said not that long ago, I'm going to unhitch myself from the Old Testament? Heard that before? Now, part of me understands where they're coming from, because if we're honest, the Old Testament is hard. It's really hard. Maybe you've started to read through the Bible plan in a year, and uh, you, you get through Genesis, some great accounts, you get through Exodus, some exciting accounts, and then what's next? Leviticus. And what do you do? You quit your Bible reading plan. Anybody been there? Yeah, I see a couple of you laughing and nodding your head because it's hard. And then if you make it through Leviticus, then you get to the middle of Job and you're like, this is even harder. And then if you keep going, you get to Ezekiel and it's even harder. The Old Testament is a challenge. But we need the Old Testament Believers should never unhitch themselves from the Old Testament because it's not just the introduction to the New Covenant. It's not just the introduction to the New Testament. It's the foundation. I'm convinced that the Old Testament is the Carfax report of the New Testament. We need it. We need the history. We need the background. Otherwise, we're going to walk in to the New Testament completely blind. And of all of the books, all 39 books in the Old Testament... I'm convinced that the book of Isaiah is one of the most important, if not the most important aspect of that Carfax report. Let me prove it to you. According to one scholar, the prophet Isaiah is quoted or alluded to 412 times in the New Testament. That's more than any other book in the Old Testament. Within the four Gospels, Jesus quotes or alludes to the prophet Isaiah, according to the same scholar, 90, not 19. 90 times, more than any other book in the Old Testament. There's a reason that of all of the books found in Qumran during the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, what was the one book that was there in its entirety? It was the great Isaiah scroll. We need Isaiah. It provides the background, the history, the fulfilled prophecy. It gives the reality of a need for a savior. But for us to understand Isaiah, we do need a a quick five-minute background of the Old Testament. So here's the Old Testament from the beginning to Isaiah in five minutes. Don't time me. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. He created creation that was very good. It was perfect. It was without sin. God created Adam and Eve, who were the first humans created in his image to bring him glory. But he gave Adam and Eve one one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what did Adam and Eve do? they ate of the tree. They disobeyed God's one command, creating a giant chasm in their relationship with God, bringing sin and depravity into the world, a sinful nature that you and I have inherited from Adam. And as a punishment, they're kicked out of the garden, but God on their way out provides a promise that someday there's going to be offspring, uses the word seed, that's going to come from the line of the woman who's going to crush the serpent, crush Satan's head once and for all. So then as we continue through the rest of the Old Testament, we see the redemptive story, the picture of God's grand story of redemption continue to take shape as we move throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Then there's another guy. His name is Abraham. It's Genesis chapter 12. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, and God makes a promise to him. This is a guy who's way too old to have kids and says, you're going to have a son and the whole world is going to be blessed to you. I'm going to give you a great land, a great nation, I'm going to give you not just one offspring, offspring that number the stars of the sky. And God blesses Abraham and gives him a son in his old age. His name is Isaac. And Isaac fathers Jacob. And Jacob fathers 12 men, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. Because there's a famine in the land, 11 of the 12 brothers, they visit one brother in Egypt. Do you remember the account as they throw before they, or after they throw Joseph into slavery? And they moved to Egypt for 400 years. 400 years, they become slaves in Egypt. The 12 men turn into a nation of over a million that are all in bondage and slavery. God raises up a man, Moses, an ex-felon. He's 80 years old. The last person you'd expect, because he doesn't even want to talk in front of people, to lead a million people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt, takes them to the promised land back to their home. But on the way back, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and gets the law, gets the old covenant, 613 commands. It's a covenant that God made with his people, he rescued them, he saved them, and they have these stipulations, these agreements to their covenant. But what happens while Moses is on top of the mountain receiving the law? The people, they build a calf, they build an image, an idol, revealing this heart tendency that's going to continue for centuries as they continue to pursue idol after idol after idol, rejecting the God that rescued them out of Egypt. It's not even Moses who leads them into the promised land. It's Joshua. After 40 years of wandering, he takes them in, conquers the nations around them. And then after Joshua comes a period of judges, which is not a very bright spot in the history of the nation of Israel. It's a downward spiral where the text says people did what was right in their own eyes. But the last judge, my favorite of the judges, his name was Samuel. And Samuel anoints a man named Saul to be king. Saul started out really well. He ended really poorly. When he dies, then David becomes king. God makes a promise to David that there's going to be a ruler on his throne forever and ever. That's a picture of the Messiah. But after David passes away, then his son Solomon reigns in his place. David and Solomon, that is the high point of the history of Israel, both in prosperity and in peace, but also in their spiritual worship of God. But after Solomon passed away, the nation of Israel started to do this. His son Rehoboam becomes king, and it takes all of one week to split the entire kingdom into two kingdoms. He becomes king over the two southern tribes, and Jeroboam, who is a former servant of Solomon, becomes king over the, two, or the ten northern tribes. Then the ten northern tribes are what we now call Israel. The two southern tribes are what we call Judah, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The, uh, the capital of the two southern tribes is Jerusalem, capital of the 10 northern tribes, Israel is Samaria. That split happened in 930 BC. This is family. They all can trace their lineage back to Jacob, but there's a lot of this that happens in the next 200 years as there's skirmish after skirmish between the two nations. So, over the next 200 years, the 10 northern tribes, the nation of Israel, they have zero good kings, zero kings that follow after the Lord. The two southern tribes, Judah, they have six good kings, six kings that follow after the Lord in the next 300 years, which is why the 10 northern tribes didn't fare quite as well. In 721 BC, God raises up the Assyrians and completely destroys the 10 northern tribes, deports them out of the land, and they are lost in the pages of history. Meanwhile, the two southern tribes, Judah, they were conquered by Babylon in 586 BC and exiled for 70 years into Babylon. There's your quick history of the nation of Israel. So where do we find Isaiah in the mix? Well, Isaiah started his ministry in 740 BC. He served as a prophet for almost 40 years, maybe over 40 years, up until 700 BC. He served the two southern tribes, Judah, capitals, Jerusalem. That was his audience primarily. If you have your Bibles, look at Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to try to learn what we can about this great prophet tonight. All I want to start with is just uh, by reading the first verse of Isaiah, and we'll talk a little bit about the prophet. Here's what it says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. There's not too much more than... Uh, What we know about Isaiah than what we see in this text. Here's what we do know His father is Amos. Jewish tradition suggests that his father's brother was Amaziah, who was a king in Judah, which means that Isaiah probably has royal blood, which makes sense because throughout the book he has maybe unparalleled access to the throne. He's talking to the king a lot. It seemed a bit unusual, could be because he had royal blood. The name Isaiah. Means Yahweh, God, is salvation, which is an appropriate name for the content of his book. But a portrait, a biography of Isaiah, frankly, isn't possible because there's almost zero self disclosure in this book. Or in 2 Kings 18 and 19, where we learn a little bit more about him, Jewish history tells us that Isaiah was martyred by Manasseh, a very evil king following Hezekiah that he was actually sawn in half. That could be the reference in Hebrews eleven thirty-seven 37, in Old Testament saint who is sawn in two. Scholars are divided, though it seems very possible that that's how Isaiah's life ended. But beyond that, we don't know much about him, which is intentional, because Isaiah takes our focus off of the human author and points it to the divine author. But Isaiah's ministry to the two southern tribes, the nation of Judah, 740 to 700 BC. It was a tumultuous time for the people of Israel. It was not a peaceful half of the century. There was conflict all around, and everyone seemed to want that little piece of real estate in the Middle East. But why? Why did the nations around Judah seem to care so much? For a couple reasons. One, it was a very beautiful and fertile land. But two, it was Right in the middle of this trade route between Africa and the rest of the world is a very hard piece of real estate to ignore. But at the time, the nation of Assyria was the global superpower. Assyria is located in modern-day northern Iraq, and to start the century, there were some less than competent rulers in Assyria. That changed when Tiklath-Pileser, Uh, the third assumed the throne in 745 BC, and he started ransacking the world, including Israel and Judah. So the nations had a choice. Are we going to be pro-Assyria? Are we going to make an alliance with them, or are we going to do what God wants, and are we not going to trust in this foreign nation for our support? Israel, the northern tribes, had a very anti-Assyria sort of response. They wanted nothing to do with them. Meanwhile, King Ahaz, who is an evil king in the the south, he took a pro-Assyria position. He started paying tribute to the Assyrians to try to get them on their side. And Isaiah knew, you could read that in Isaiah chapter 8, it was a bad idea. They were going to keep demanding more and more and more, and it was just going to end in war. And he was correct. But the tides changed when tiklath pileser died in 727. A new king, Shalmanassar, resumed or assumed the throne And then he conquered the 10 northern tribes in 721, and they were lost in the pages of history, what we call the 10 lost tribes. Meanwhile, Hezekiah, a new king in Jerusalem, had a total opposite foreign policy than his predecessor Ahaz. He decided that he was going to be defiantly anti-Assyrian, which was a good thing, except he decided to look to Egypt for help instead. Isaiah calls Egypt a broken reed. They always overpromise and underliver, which is what happened. He paid them off, and then they never came to their aid. But he was anti-Assyrian, which didn't work out very well for his foreign policy. The Assyrians besieged Jerusalem. If it wasn't for God's miraculous intervention, which we'll read about in a couple of weeks, the nation would have been completely wiped out. If you'd like a deeper dive into the history surrounding Isaiah and Judah and Israel during this time, 2 Kings, would be a great parallel to our Isaiah study. But for Isaiah's audience, that was the people of Judah from 740 to 700 BC, not an easy time in history. There was always a fear of war. There was always a a fear of being attacked. And they were not a powerful nation. They were not a mighty nation. They were not an overly populated nation. They knew that they could never withstand the Assyrians. So there was a fear. One day, maybe even tomorrow, their life would change forever, that either they'd be killed or they'd be deported and life would change. We know nothing of that, do we? We don't live in a constant fear of attack. We don't live in a constant fear of war. We know nothing of that. The only modern day parallel would possibly be what it would be like to live in a nation like Ukraine today. The fear of everything changing in a moment, the fear of an attack at any moment. That's what it was like for Isaiah's audience. So the people had a choice. What are we gonna do? Are we gonna trust in God? Are we gonna trust in his promises? Are we gonna follow his law? Are we gonna pay off Egypt? Are we gonna pay off the Assyrians and hope for the best? Both Ahaz and Hezekiah, two of the kings that Isaiah served underneath, they gave in to the pressure, but Isaiah was relentless in his preaching. Jerusalem was his home, so he was invested and he never wavered in his commitment to worshiping God and preaching his word alone, proclaiming God's truth. Isaiah over and over again called his people to repent. So last week, if you joined us at Mission Coffee in Mozanie, we had a great night of worship, and our outline was Isaiah 6, this beautiful, dramatic throne room experience where Isaiah has a, a vision of God's glory on his throne, and And then he's called and commissioned into ministry. If it's me, I would expect Isaiah 6 to be the first chapter, the beginning, but it's not. He gives us five chapters of introduction that lead up to chapter 6, and that's where we're going to be tonight as they set the stage. So as we continue in Isaiah chapter 1, I'll read parts of the rest of the chapter starting in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. "'Children, have I reared and brought up, "'but they've rebelled against me. "'The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, "'but Israel does not know. "'My people do not understand. "'Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, "'offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. "'They've forsaken the Lord. "'They've despised the Holy One of Israel. "'They're utterly estranged. "'Why will you still be struck down? "'Why will you continue to rebel? "'The whole head is sick. "'The whole heart is faint. "'From the sole of the foot even to the head, "'there's no soundness in it.' No bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Let me pause there. That's how Isaiah begins his prophecy. I wouldn't call it a soft or an easy start to the book, but Isaiah paints a scene. Imagine that you're in a courtroom, that the nation of Judah is on trial. They've rebelled against God. They've broken their covenant with Him. And God begins to heap accusation after accusation against them. The structure of this chapter is much like that of an ancient legal case where God is the prosecuting attorney. And if God's the prosecuting attorney, good luck. He calls his witnesses to the stand. Look what he says in verse 2 Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He calls the entirety of his creation to the stand as witnesses against the tyranny, against the rebellion, against the rejection of his people. God calls Judah his children. It's an instant reminder of God's covenant relationship with his people, the promise that he made. Think of all the things that God did for his people in the Old Testament. He rescued them from Egypt. He brought them back home to a beautiful land that the text says was flowing with milk and honey. He miraculously provided food for them in the wilderness for 40 years. He provided them a hope and a future and protection from their enemies. God kept his half of the covenant, his side of the covenant, flawlessly, but not Israel. God gave them 613 commands because God chose them, not by anything that they've done. He chose them to be his people completely because of his purpose and grace. And as a response, they were called, they committed to following God's 613 unique commands in the Old Testament. And Jesus rightfully summarizes these commands in two laws. Do you remember what they were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and your might. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. All 613 Old Testament commands can fall underneath one of those two umbrellas. But what did the people do? They rejected all of it. They did not obey God's command. They did not fulfill their half of the covenant, and they find themselves on trial. Consider the charges that come just in the first couple of verses. My children have rebelled. God says that the ox knows its owner, but Israel, they don't know God. They're filled with sin and iniquity. They've abandoned the Lord. They're estranged from him, and they're not just apathetic— They've actively rejected, actively abandoned, and actively despised God. They deal in corruption. Their head is sick, which means their leadership is infected, which has inflicted the entire body. The sin is chronic, and it's terminal. And they've done nothing to tend their wounds. They see the spiritual condition. They see the gross, rotting flesh, but they've left it. They're apathetic. It's a bleak picture of their spiritual health. These are serious charges. Verse 10, it doesn't get any better. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling in my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Let's pause there. Did you notice who he addresses to start verse 10? Rulers of Sodom? People of Gomorrah? How does that make any sense? Isn't Isaiah writing to the people of Judah? Aren't Sodom and Gomorrah other nations? Well, they were, but you remember what happened. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by fire in the day of Abraham, hundreds and hundreds of years before. He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's a nickname. God is calling his people Sodom and Gomorrah. When you wanted to talk about sin, when you wanted to talk about evil and rebellion in Isaiah's day, the worst comparison is Sodom and Gomorrah. Today, it would be like comparing someone to Jeffrey Dahmer. This is not a compliment. He calls his people the highest evil, the worst way to describe their sin. But then God asks an intriguing question and says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? God's not being sarcastic. They were legitimately sacrificing, and not just a couple times. It talks about a multitude of sacrifices. And and they offered burnt offerings. They remembered convocations and, and new moon and Sabbath. In other words, they were being really good Jews. They were doing all of the things that they were supposed to do. Yet God rejects their formal acts of worship. Why? Because they worshiped God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Not only were they sacrificing to Yahweh, but at the same time, they're sacrificing to Baal and the other gods of the nations around them. They rejected the poor. They refused to help the widows. They dealt in corruption. How does verse 15 finish? Your hands are full of blood. They're filled with injustice and oppression. They're depending on foreign nations for aid. They're not trusting the Lord. They would show up to the temple. They'd show up to the synagogue. They'd worship on the Sabbath, but they would do nothing the rest of the week. Their worship didn't come from a heart of humility. It came from a heart of wickedness. It came from a heart of pride. Their behavior indicated that they really rejected God. But after God equates their wickedness with Sodom and Gomorrah, then what would you expect next a sentencing i'd expect god to bring down the gavel and condemn his people to life in prison right so now what comes next look at verse 16 wash yourselves make yourselves clean remove the evil deeds from before my eyes cease to do evil learn to do good seek justice correct oppression Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That is absolutely incredible language. God has made this scathing accusation against his people. He has all authority to bring down the punishment and bring down condemnation, but that's not what he does. He offers them a second chance. There's still time to renew their covenant. There's still time to follow the Lord. He's not finished with his people, but it requires change. It requires action. Wash, be clean, stop doing evil, do good, seek justice stop oppression. How would we summarize those words in one command? Repent. Repent. Turn from your wickedness and turn to God. Verse 18 has to be one of the coolest verses in all all of Isaiah. I'm going to read it again. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In the courtroom, it's almost as if God steps off of the stand, takes off his judge robe, and looks at his people and says, we've got to talk. He gives them an invitation to have a conversation, to say, I know there's an issue. I know that there's a divide in our relationship, and we've got to talk about it. I want to give you a second chance He offers to restore his people. He offers them forgiveness. He offers them complete and total cleansing. But the people must be willing to repent, to turn from their wicked way and follow God. When I read a text like this, I think it's easy for all of us to point our finger at the Israelites and say, how could you do that? How could you reject God? How could you be so sinful? How could God call you Sodom and Gomorrah? Before I point my finger, I have to look in the mirror because Isaiah 1 has Sam written all over it. I was a rebel. We're all born in sin. We're all born in rebellion against God. When I think about my life before Jesus, this description is me. I'm the one who rebelled. I'm the one who worshiped God with my lips, but my heart was anywhere near him. I'm the one who didn't know him, him who was filled with sin and iniquity and just didn't care. That was me. This text applies to me even better than it did to Isaiah's audience because none of us are born righteous. We are all born sinners, enemies of God in need of a heart transplant. But then we get to verse 18, a verse that completely foreshadows the cross because we can't save ourselves We need a Messiah. We need a Savior who could be our once and for all sacrifice, who would offer us a new heart, replacing our heart of stone with the heart of flesh, who would promise the Holy Spirit, who would begin to change us from the inside out. We need a perfect sacrificial Lamb who would take away all of our sin in one act of redemption on the cross. Verse 18 is Jesus, verse 18 is the gospel. It applies to you and I even better through Christ than it did to Isaiah's audience. I hope that we can look in the mirror at Isaiah 1 and see ourselves, that we're more sinful and wicked than we could ever imagine, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could hope or dream. That's Isaiah 118. So as we think about this text, three things I want us to consider tonight. You already heard me say the first one is repent. Repent. Some of us here tonight, some of you here need to, what I'll call capital R, repent. When you look at Isaiah chapter 1, your life looks like 10 through 15. You're not to verse 18 yet. Or maybe you come to church, you come to young adults, and you talk a really good game, but you know that your heart is far from God. You know that you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior. Or maybe you know that you haven't yet believed in Christ. Maybe you depend on your own resume and you think that because I'm a a pretty good person, God's going to let me into heaven someday. That's not how it works. We need a heart transplant, and that's only something that God can do that happens the moment that we turn away from our old way of life and we follow Christ. That capital R, repentance, it's not something we can do on our own. It's something that God's Spirit has to do inside of us, that repentance takes the form of a request. Father, change my heart. Turn my heart towards you. Give me the strength to follow you. Repentance comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. The moment that we trust in Christ as our Savior. If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, you've never trusted Him as your Savior, you've never, by the power of the Spirit, turned away from your sin and believed in Jesus, that is the most important decision you can make. Eternity is literally weighing in the balance. Don't leave tonight without knowing that you know Jesus. But for all of us that know Jesus, if you believe in Him, if you're adopted in His family, then what I'll call lowercase our repentance— has to be part of our life every day, (laughs) because none of us are perfect. All of us still struggle with sin every day, and we have to keep repenting. We have to be people who are really good at not just confessing our sin to the Lord, but repenting, turning away from it, and following Him. Maybe it means praying something kind of scary and saying, Father, reveal the sin in my life that I don't see. Or something else scary, make my sin more and more disgusting to me, Give me the strength to turn away from the sin that easily entangles us and to run the race with endurance. Where do I, where do you need to repent? Because this passage reminds us that God never gives up on His people. And His hope and His desire is repentance and trust. Ultimately, His desire is worship, the worship He alone deserves. And when God is not getting the worship that He deserves, when we worship idols. And for us, it's not going to be a golden calf, probably. It's not going to be an idol of wood and stone. For us, idols are often good things that become ultimate things that take the place of God in our life, whether it's sports or hobbies or work or popularity or relationships or comfort or family or money. All of those things can take the place of God in our life. And, and we start worshiping, when we start worshiping the, those things instead of God, giving those things the time, the attention, the glory that God deserves, then what happens? Discipline. And I promise it'll be much easier for us to turn away from idolatry now than for God to initiate discipline in our life. Reminds me of a friend of mine. When he was in junior high, he knew about Jesus but didn't follow Jesus. And he was a a soccer player, a really good soccer player. That had his eyes set, even as a middle schooler, on D one college soccer. But his eighth grade year, he blew out his ACL, and there goes college soccer. There goes the hope of being pretty good at high school soccer. Was it was done, and he finds himself on his back. And the Lord puts a mentor in his life, who brings the Bible every day, and starts walking through the Bible with him. And while he's rehabbing from his ACL surgery, he accepts Christ. Soccer was the idol in his life. God removed the idol and replaced it with something better. And now he would say the ACL injury is one of the best things that ever happened to him. Hard to say in the moment, isn't it? We all need the Lord's discipline in our life at some time or another. It also fits in with parenting. Our Hannah and I's oldest. Uh, is two and a half, which means he likes to push some boundaries sometimes. <laughs> and he's at the point of his life where he's understanding what boundaries are and that it's kind of fun to test them and see if mom and dad are actually serious. So we have conversations that sound like this, I, not even daily, probably hourly, and say, please do not throw your toy at the dog. If you throw your toy at the dog One more time, you will receive discipline. Please choose to obey. And then he has a choice. What's he going to do? Is he going to choose obedience or is he going to choose disobedience, which results in discipline? Life is much more pleasant for our son when he chooses obedience. The same is true for us. God is after our heart affection. Life is going to be a lot more pleasant for us when we choose obedience on our own. But if God doesn't get it, then He's going to initiate corrective discipline in our life. Something that all of us are going to need at some point or another. But it's going to be easier when we turn before the Lord initiates that step of discipline. He's after our heart. He wants our worship. Because God doesn't care just about right actions. He cares about our heart. And that's our second thing tonight the heart of worship is more important is greater than lip service <clears throat> the people of judah they worshiped god with their lips even more than that with their formal religious rituals they weren't just saying that they were worshiping god they were actually doing it they would show up at the temple with sacrifices it was costly when they made a sacrifice they were actually giving to god what was going to be their some of their food for the week. They were trusting then that God would provide, so it wasn't even an empty sacrifice. It was something that was costly. It took time. It took energy. It wasn't simply just lip service, but God still rejected their religious ritual. Why? Because it didn't come from the right heart. They worshiped God with their hands and not their hearts. God cares more about our hearts than just our actions. This could apply to our young adult family today in a thousand ways. Let me just think of one. I love when people raise their hands and engage in worship. Love it. When I lead worship, it's so encouraging when the church family is engaged and participating and singing. Often when I'm leading and I'll, I'll look out, instead of engagement, I'll see something like this. Hmm. wonder what I need for lunch today. Or... When's this song ever going to be done? So when I see people engaged and excited and singing, it's encouraging to me as a worship leader. But here's what God doesn't want us to do. He doesn't want us to raise our hands and worship on Sunday morning or Monday night, and then completely disregard Him the rest of the week. He wants our hands and our heart. He wants both. That worship is more than a song that we sing or a a posture that we have. Worship is the way we live our life. Romans 12:1 and 2, a, a living sacrifice that involves every element and aspect of who we are, not just an hour or two on Sundays and Mondays. Yes, God wants our affection and worship, but He also wants our time, <laughs> wants our skills, our gifts, wants our resources. All of us is an element of worship offering to God our very life. obedience. Religious ritual without the right heart is meaningless. We need to focus on our heart first before we think about the obedience, the action, the posture. Well, finally, it's hard for me to understand, but we'll see it throughout the book of Isaiah. God is glorified in judgment and salvation. I know what some of us want to do. We want to take a big X and cross out the word judgment and just say, God's glorified in salvation. But it's not what we've seen in Isaiah. God is glorified in judgment. He's glorified in exiling His people for 70 years to an evil nation. But God is also glorified every time that a sinner turns away from their old way of life and believes in Christ. He's glorified in salvation. He's glorified in judgment. He's glorified in both. Yes, hard for us to wrap our mind around sometimes, but that's a tension that we have to hold in the balances as we read a book like Isaiah because God is after our worship and is concerned about his glory. Well, I hope that you discover like I have as I've been prepping and studying in the great book of Isaiah, this is a big deal book. But you're only going to get out of our study what you put into it. If you want to come on Monday nights and be a passive listener, you can do that. But you're going to get out of the study what you put into it. But if you want to come on Monday nights and be an active listener, you want to read Isaiah on the side, and start digesting some of these texts, or you want to read First and Second Kings to understand what's going on in Israel at the time, or, or maybe you want to read through the text ahead of time that we post on social media, just so you, that you know where we're going and prepare our hearts to study. If you put time in, then I trust you're going to discover the same thing I have. This is one of the most important elements of the Carfax of the Old Testament. Let me pray. Father, Isaiah's is a hard book, but hard is good. And you're going to leave us with challenge after challenge through this great text in the Old Testament, and even tonight as we looked at the first chapter. May you convict our hearts and reveal areas where we need to repent, if that's a capital R, repentance, or if that's a lowercase r, repentance. Father, if there's elements of our life where we're offering you lip service without heart worship, may you reveal those to us as well, that we want to be a young adult family that doesn't just worship you with our mouths, with our lips, but with our hearts and our very lives, which overflows in our actions and our attitudes and even how we worship when we gather on Sundays and Mondays. As we take some time to unpack and dialogue in our small groups tonight, may you guide our discussion in Jesus' name, amen.